This is Dish and Dirt with Gary Pickren, South Carolina's only podcast dedicated to the real estate agent's craft. Hey, greetings, everyone. Welcome back to yet another exciting week of Dish and Dirt. I am your very talented, often opinionated, and sometimes verbose host, Gary Pickren, with yet another tantalizing episode of Dish and Dirt. But what could be more fun than waking up or working out to the sound of my voice, discussing all the woes and lamentations that are real estate? This week's class comes from the broker class that I taught last week, and I realized just how badly that real estate agents are handling the offer rejection form. So we're going to talk about that and the top five ways that you guys are just constantly screwing this thing up. We're also going to have a little bit longer segment on what happened while you were out showing, and I'll do my normal Gary's good news only with a lot of good COVID vaccine news. But before we start, someone asked me the other day, exactly how many listeners are you getting to your silly little show? And I think he was thinking I'd say four, five, six, seven, eight people But believe it or not, we're actually now averaging about 500 listeners per week. And in case you're wondering how far of a net that this this show actually cast, I think you might be amazed that it actually reaches people in Europe and Asia. I have several people that listen to this show regularly over there. I think they're mainly service members who are looking to move to South Carolina. But I also wanted to give a big shout out to those that are listening constantly in Centennial, Colorado, Atlanta, Georgia. Hugh, Ohio, Lake Stevens, Washington, San Jose, California. So you guys that are listening outside of South Carolina, keep it up. I really appreciate you guys listening to us and helping make this show what it is today and helping it to grow. So once again, if you like us, please like us, share us, and subscribe and let all the other real estate agents know whether they're in South Carolina or otherwise about our show so we can continue to offer you great content. So today we're going to talk about this offer rejection form. And let me just start off by saying I absolutely hate the offer rejection form. I think it's probably one of the dumbest things they've ever come out in real estate. There, I said it. I don't know who the ad genius was behind this one. The premise is this, that you guys aren't presenting offers, is what they believe. And so the legislature felt that if they would just create a form for you to sign saying that you presented the offer, it would just make everything all right. But here's the sad truth about that. Any agent who's not presenting offers is not going to hesitate to sign the stupid form saying that they did present the offer. This is not going to address, address anything. It's not going to fix anything because those same bad agents who are not presenting offers are now not presenting offers and signing a form saying they did. How does that change anything? Nothing's different. I don't understand why anyone ever thought that this form would do anything except add more work to you. And that's the bigger problem. I feel that this offer rejection form does nothing but creates more work for you, the honest agent, that is, and it creates more liability for you as well. What I mean by liability is not not necessarily liability towards your client, but liability under the law, 40-57. Now, I have already had to defend real estate agents before on this form, and what the grievance was is that they did not send an offer rejection form. And it's a very difficult case to defend because either you sent it or you didn't. And so if you didn't send the form and you have a grievance against you, it's very difficult for me to defend you against that. All I can say is yes, but here's why. And that's not usually a very good way to defend somebody before the real estate commission. I can easily see and understand in today's climate how you could miss that. I mean, you're only getting, I don't know, 4,812 offers per listing, right? I mean, it's outrageous what's happening. Really, you're averaging, I think, somewhere between 10, 20, or 30 per listing. So I can understand it being very easy to miss one or you being just so busy that you don't have time to respond to 30 offers 
that are all outrageously low. When everything is going above market price and people are coming in 15, 20% below market, I can understand why it's tempting just to ignore that offer and not make the offer rejection form uh, or send the offer rejection form. But that's why this is so important because I do believe in this atmosphere that we're in that people are very upset right now. People are mad. They're submitted eight, nine, ten offers and they haven't been able to win a house yet. Real estate agents have a stable of buyers that are just willing and able to buy a house, but they can't find them anything. And when you have agents that rely mainly on buyers and don't have listings, that is their income. So imagine if you're here a buyer and you continually and constantly submit offers for your buyers and you're not hearing back from the other side, how angry that would typically make you as an agent, particularly when that is your income, that is your livelihood. So I certainly understand how the buyer's agents are getting fed up. I understand why the seller's agents are getting fed up because it is additional work and it's bad for the buyer's agents because they're not getting any information back to find out why their offers aren't being accepted. So I understand both sides of it. I don't understand at all how this form is going to do anything to protect it. So you have to understand you've got to be able to prepare, be prepared to prove that you sent the form. Because if a grievance is filed against you, our hopeful answer is, oh, they're mistaken. Here's the email and here's the form we sent out. But outside of that, if there is a grievance against you for that, it becomes a very difficult case for us to defend. So be prepared. Have that form done, sent, and keep a copy of it so that you can prove it. Now, several agents have asked me in the past, well, wouldn't it just fix the whole matter if we just asked the sellers to sign this disclosure form? Well, first of all, under 40-57, that is the real estate law and how it affects real estate brokers and salesmen and property managers. Notice that I didn't say sellers. The ju- they have no jurisdiction over the sellers under that statute. 40-57 only pertains to real estate licensees and the brokers. It does not pertain to sellers, so they have no jurisdiction over the seller. And they can't make them do anything the seller doesn't want to do. Let's go ahead and suppose for one second that there was jurisdiction over the seller. What are you going to do? I mean, they're going to have hearings every day on how many times the sellers didn't sign it and fine the seller $25. Who's going to police that and how are they ever going to collect the money? But more importantly, I'm glad they don't have sellers sign this thing. Because could you imagine in today's market where every offer is above ask and somebody comes in at half price that you'd have to present that offer to your seller and have your seller sign that they don't want to counteroffer. They're already mad that such a bad offer came in. Or imagine a scenario where we weren't in this type of market and the house has been on the market for almost a year and they're already talking about they want to fire you and then you finally get a terrible offer in and you have to call these people on vacation, ask them to please go up to the hotel, get off the beach, sign the document, and then fax it back to you. I can only imagine how many cuss words would be levied at you in that situation. So let's look at the law and what the law actually says. So there's several statutes here that actually control this. 40-57-135-H1 says, Upon receipt, prepare all offers in writing and promptly present them to the seller. 135-L4 says, A licensee offering services to a customer shall timely present all written offers to and from the parties involved in the sale, lease, and exchange of property, even when the property is subject to a contract to sell. And then 135I4 says that a broker in charge shall ensure that associated licensees prepare all offers and counteroffers in writing, have them dated and signed by the offerors, and promptly present them to the offerees 
or the offeree's representative. So we got three different statutes that talk about promptly and timely presenting offers. Not only the buyer's agent timely presenting them once they are signed, but also the selling or listing agent, rather, that they are presenting these offers timely once they are presented as well. So it is very important that you understand that anytime you receive an offer, you must present the offer timely to the buyer, for, for the buyer, to the seller. And then the most important part is 4057-135-I5 says, if an offer is rejected without counter, an offer rejection form promulgated by the commission, signed by the licensee affirming presentation of the offer, must be provided to the offer or by the licensee, whether the agent or the buyer, the seller, or if acting as a transaction broker. So do you think they mean serious business about that? And did you notice that the language in the form is mandatory? It uses the word must. It doesn't say you may do it or you should do it. It's mandatory language. You must do it. So understand, the Real Estate Commission is very serious about this form. It has consistently been in our legal education. So they are going to punish you if you're not doing this and somebody decides to turn you in. The easiest way to understand offer rejection form is this. A buyer should get one of three responses from a seller when they present a contract, either a written acceptance of that contract, a written counter offer of that contract, or an offer rejection form. As long as you understand that there has to be one of those three things going back to a buyer making an offer, you should be good to go. Now, let's also examine when you must present the offer, because I think that is also very important in this discussion. They've used the words promptly and timely. So what does that mean? It's case specific, but I say use your common sense. If you're in a listing meeting with another and an offer comes in, do you need to stop the listing meeting and go present the offer? No. If you're in, during an, an MCE or a CE class that we're teaching, do you need to get off the class and go present the offer? No, that's not timely or promptly. That's not necessary. That's unreasonable. But waiting to the next day or waiting until other offers are coming in, that's an absolute no-no. You can't wait and collect offers. You can't decide when you want to present the offer. When you get the offer, you need to, as soon as reasonably possible, present that offer to your client. Now, your client can decide to wait to respond, but you cannot wait to present. Too many in this industry are, are saying in MLS right now that they're not going to present offers until the end of the week. You cannot do that. That's a violation of the law. You can say... I will present all offers when they are received and then state that my client has advised us that they will not respond to any offers until Friday at five o'clock. Be sure to make sure that your expiration of the contract is not till after that time. Lastly, before we start with our countdown, no, you do not have to submit for rejected counter offers. The statute is somewhat unclear on that, but the commission has ruled that you only have to submit the offer rejection form on the original offer and not on counter offers. So now let's look at the top five ways you guys are screwing up the offer rejection form. The number five way that you guys are screwing up the offer rejection form is not doing it. As I mentioned, the statute requires it. It mentions it multiple times throughout. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I hate it. You hate it. We all hate it. But guess what? You got to do it. So number five way in which you get in trouble for offer rejection forms is simply ignoring the statute. And in today's environments, as buyers are more and more frustrated and buyer's agents become more and more frustrated, if you are not sending that form, it's a guarantee that one of them is going to get mad at you at some point and file a grievance against you. And if you haven't filed the form with them and sent the form to them, rather, there is absolutely no defense. It doesn't matter who's representing you. You have Johnny Cochran and F. Lee Bailey combined. 
They're not going to get you out because the bottom line is they're going to ask us to send a copy of the form. And if you don't have it, you don't have it, and that's going to be actionable. And I think the days of the commission just simply giving you a, a warning on this issue are probably long gone. We've had this statute since 2017 now, over four years, and I think they are now to the point they expect you to know the law and abide by it. It's in our education classes. We've had it for multiple times in the education classes. There's no excuse now for not doing it. Number four, the fourth most common way that you guys are screwing up offer rejection forms, not using the prescribed form. The statute says an offer rejection form promulgated by the commission. It does not say your email. That's not promulgated by the commission. Your text messages, your phone calls, that doesn't count. And I had somebody call me the other day and said this top agent, and they named the agent, said they didn't have time for it. The email was good enough. No, it's not. Use the stupid form. The form is what you have to use. You don't get to decide how you want to do it, when you want to do it. Your office can't create a form. You can't create a form. You have to use the exact form that has been promulgated by the Real Estate Commission, which, by the way, assigned the, that job over to the Real Estate uh, Realtors Association, and they've done it. So there's no reason not to do it. Every one of you have copies of it. It's all in your zip forms and other form, uh, form banks. The number three way you guys screw up the offer rejection form is FISBOs. So let me see if you know the answer to this. A residential buyer is presenting an offer directly to a FISBO. The owner is upset that the buyer did not offer full price and refuses to counter. Is the buyer agent required to complete the offer rejection form? The answer is yes. The buyer's agent is the presenting licensee. So even though you do not represent the seller, you have to complete the form because you are the presenting agent. Remember, the language in the statute says the agent presenting the offer. If the seller was represented then the listing agent would present it and they would have to fill it out. But when the seller is not represented and you represent the buyer, you are presenting that offer to the seller. So you are the one that has to provide the no counter offer form back to your own buyer. It's a little bit screwing. A lot of people don't know that. So make sure you understand if you're dealing with a FISBO, you still have to do that offer rejection form. Unfortunately, you may have to do it to your client and not from your client. The number two way that agents are screwing up the offer rejection form. Multiple offers. Today you're getting 30, 40, 50 offers per listing. How many of you are sending out this form each and every time to all of those that you're not countering? You should be. It doesn't matter. There's no exemption or exception because there were too many. If you have offers, period, that you are not counting, countering, you have to send the offer rejection form. So I'm sorry that it's 40 offers today that you've received. Count yourself blessed. If you got 30 or 40 offers on a listing today, be fortunate. There were times, I've been doing this for 26 years, and there have been many times where we have had properties that you couldn't give away. If you go back just to the 2007 economic crisis in 2009 and 10, there were a lot of properties you could not give away regardless of what price you put on them. So that is fortunate where we are today. I know it is time consuming. I know it's a pain in the butt, but you still have to send the offer rejection form to all of those multiple offers that you are not countering. And now the number one way that agents are screwing up the offer rejection form, and this one's going to get you a little bit as well. When you get multiple offers and ask for best and final, you are in essence rejecting all the offers. So you have to send the form with the call for the best and final. So let me give an example. A broker has five purchase offers on a retail space that is located in a rapidly developing complex. The owner turns down three of the offers due to price and contingencies. The offer asks the sales agent to return the final two offers for best and final. 
and we'll review these two offers and any others that come in with the next three business days. How many offer rejection forms must you present as the, as the licensee? Most agents, including myself, would say three because you turn down those three offers and you ask for best and final from the other two. But the correct answer is five because, in essence, you are turning down all five offers. You've declined all of them with no counter, and now you're asking them to come back with best and final. You asking for best and final is not a counter offer. That's a rejection, and now you're asking them to submit you another offer. So there you have it. Those are the top five ways that real estate agents screw up the offer rejection form. I reiterate, do not mess around with this form. It's very important. Make sure that you are completing it and sending it out every single time, because if you don't, there's not much I can do to save you if you have a grievance over at the real estate And now let's move on to one of my favorite segments, what happened while you were out showing. We actually have three of those for you today. Number one, Bloomberg is announcing that the administration is proposing to eliminate 1031 like-kind exchanges for tax gains over half a million dollars. And what Bloomberg says is that these uh, like-kind exchanges known as 1031 exchanges is a perk that allows property investors to roll the proceeds of real estate sales into future purchases without paying capital gains taxes on the profits. The deferral process can theoretically continue indefinitely until the investor's death, and if assets are passed to an heir, the capital gains bill is often wiped out. The strategy was projected to save the investors $41.4 billion between 2020 and 2024, according to Congress Joint Committee on Taxation. It does not break down how many of these would lose that benefit if the $500,000 and greater cap is put in. That's not good news for investors. Secondly, from the National Law Review on this same bill, the administration has proposed eliminating the step up in basis at death. The result of this would change would be also an elimination of one of the key advantages of the 1031 exchange, allowing individual investors to essentially make the tax deferral permanent if they choose to hold it until they die. This could obviously have severe ramifications for estate planning and 1031 tax planning. Now, from Yahoo Finance, here's more on what they're saying about the housing market and what it looks like this year and what they believe will happen next year. Number one, they say interest rates will remain relatively low. They say the pandemic has brought the lowest 30-year fixed-rate mortgage uh, in U.S. history. It plummeted to 2.65% in January, down from 3.64 a year earlier. And while it has climbed back uh, to an average of 3.18% at the beginning of April, it was back down to 2.98 by the end of April. Interest rates, they say, will continue to rise but remain low through 2021 and possibly into 2022. So that's certainly good news. Home inventory will increase. The average total for sale housing inventory in the country for January was 895, excuse me, 895,381, dropping to 822,790 in February and then 808,071 in March. They expect the home inventory will increase, but not at breakneck speed. It stands to reason that after selling the home, many of those sellers will turn around and buy another home. They also stated that we were in an unbalanced market where there is low inventory on homes available and multiple buyers on every property that is for sale. And I know y'all are seeing that, no doubt. Also, it will remain a seller's market uh, the coming year as vaccine continues to be administered. Businesses are reopening and unemployment claims continue to steadily fall. Consumer confidence is growing, which means there are more sellers. May start entering the market, but we have to acknowledge that's not going to happen for a while. So the seller market will last, but how long, it will, we don't know. It definitely will not be indefinitely. And then they also cite two other things. Home prices will continue to climb. January, the medium home listed in the U.S. was 330500 It climbed slightly to 331830 in February and to 338830 in March. This continued pace, 
the median list price will reach 379112 by the end of the year. That's an unbelievable figure. And lastly, lumber prices will remain high for home builders. 2021 will be defined by a surge in material costs. Lumber prices have simply gone through the roof. Uh, one of my friends on Instagram posted how bad lumber prices were. Would cost to build a 2,400 board foot deck, which is a 200 square foot deck or also known 10 by 20. In April of 2020, it was $936 of lumber. Today, the lumber alone, $3,696. Outrageous. And that is what happened while you were out shopping. Now let's move over to Gary's Good News Only. We have three economic news tidbits before we move into COVID. But before we start with the economic good news, WLTX has just announced that Lexington Richland School District 5 has decided to allow students and staff to choose if they want to wear face masks, becoming the first district in the Midlands to relax that rule. This new rule will go into effect on May the 10th. I hope other school districts are following what they're doing. That is certainly good news moving forward for our children. And now back to the economic news. First from MarketWatch, pending home sales rebounded after two straight months of decline, but uh, challenges still remain for the market ahead due to the lack of inventory. The index of pending home sales from the National Association of Realtors increased 1.9% in March. According to Housing Wire, the total number of servicers, loans, and forbearance fell for the ninth straight week. That's certainly good news. And Housing Wire also reported for the second consecutive week, mortgage rates managed to hold steady below 3%, rising one basis point last week to 2.98%, according to Freddie Mac. Now let's talk about COVID. What does the science say about the vaccine? What's the risk of getting it? What's the risk of passing it along to anybody else? Let's talk about the risk of getting the COVID vaccine. We certainly know it is possible to get COVID after the vaccine. Most of them have about a 90% efficacy rate, but how likely is it really? So I'm going to give you some stats. This will blow your mind. Your risk of contracting the COVID virus is this. 0.008% if you're vaccinated. Your risk of being hospitalized if you're vaccinated, 0.00056%. That is only 7% of those people who have gotten the vaccine, who even got COVID, that is your risk of being hospitalized. And your risk of dying from COVID if you've been vaccinated, 0.00001%. Let me put that to you another way. 99.992% chance that you're not going to get COVID if you're vaccinated. You have a 99.99944% that you won't be hospitalized. And your percentage chance of not dying from COVID, and this is a crazy number, 99.99999% chance you won't die of COVID if you're vaccinated. That's simply astonishing. If you get vaccinated, you're not going to catch COVID. You're not going to be hospitalized. You're not going to die from it, which is probably why we're seeing so many states now finally open. It's probably why we're seeing CDC and New York Times and CNN and things of that nature saying that maybe we aren't going far enough on opening. The answer to that question is absolutely we're not, because if you have no chance of getting COVID, dying from COVID, or being even hospitalized from COVID, then there's no reason anything needs to be shut down or we need to be wearing masks. Unbelievable. How, so now the question is, so we know it's almost impossible for you to get it, to be hospitalized or die from it, but can you spread it if you are one of those 0.00001% people? Can you pass it on? Three studies say you can't. Well, the first one found that after one, not two, but one dose of Pfizer, 
um, the viral loads are 20 times lower than those people who aren't vaccinated. And then the Mayo Clinic in a UK study found that of the 85,000 people they routinely tested in healthcare that worked uh, that were vaccinated, it reduced their level of infection if they did get the infection by 85 to 89 percent. So once again, it's almost impossible to get it and it's nearly impossible to spread it. So it's time to follow the science. Once you get vaccinated, stop worrying. If you get anything, it's going to be extremely mild. And if you pass it on, it's going to be even less than mild. So how low of a risk is transmission outside from COVID? Well, researchers in Italy have used a new mathematical model to calculate the amount of time a person would take to become infected outdoors, and they use Milan. They even use a grim scenario of 10% of the population was infected with the virus. It would take, on average, 31.5 days of continuous outdoor exposure to inhale a dose of coronavirus sufficient enough to transmit infection. I've been to some concerts, some festivals, some ball games. None of them ever lasted 31.5 days. Worldwide, scientists have also not documented a single case of outdoor transmission unless the people were close conversation. Not one, zilt, none globally. And that comes from Stu Does America, which is actually a very good podcast. Next, from Becker's Hospital Review. As of 6 a.m., May 3rd, a total of 312,500,000 vaccines have been distributed. 246,780,000 have been administered, which is 79%. Additionally, 147,517,000 people have received at least one dose, which means they'll probably receive two at some point. 105,523,000 have been fully vaccinated. That now means 44.4% of the entire U.S. population has received at least one dose of the vaccine, and 31.8% have been fully vaccinated. We're over halfway there on vaccination. Also, in the state of South Carolina, 4.5 million doses have been distributed. 3.3 million have been administered. Lastly, let's talk about these seven-day rolling averages. I love these things. The current seven-day moving average of daily new cases is 52,528. That is a decrease of 16.2% from the previous seven-day average. And it's also compared to the peak is down from the 249,669-day peak of January 8th. That's currently a 79% decrease. Next, let's talk about the percentage of positive PCR test. Those have decreased from the previous week. The seven-day average of percent positivity from PCR tests is now only 4.5%. That is down 3.1% from the prior seven days. New hospitalization admissions. The current seven-day average, 5,057. That is a 9.8% decrease from the prior seven-day average of 5,607. And that is also uh, good to see because the numbers had been slightly increasing from March 22nd till April 18th. Deaths. April 19, the seven-day moving average has been lower compared with the seven-day moving average of the prior week. Current seven-day average is 628 deaths, which is a decrease of 8.2% compared to the last number, which was 684. So that's certainly good news. It looks like we are continuing to turn the tide on the COVID virus. And that's our silly little show for the day. I really appreciate everybody tuning in. If you're listening on podcasts such as Apple or Pandora, one of those platforms, if you just reach up and click that little button saying that you like it or give me a thumbs up, that would certainly help my cause. And if you would please like us, share us, and subscribe to us, that would be really cool as well. Once again, thank you for all your support, and I hope everybody has a wonderful weekend.